All right, we are in the uh, Corinthian letters. We're in the second letter. And um, I know that uh, we've gone kind of long in our service and we have uh, another thing to do. So I'm going to try to uh, turn this more into a homily than a full-on sermon. Uh, See how I can edit as I go. Uh, uh, That actually works good because of uh, what this particular content is. The purpose of Paul's letters... uh, this second letter, was to reestablish his relationship with the Corinthians. His first letter was a rebuke for their fractionalization, their disruption of unity by claiming to be uh, a Paul or Apollos and dividing over gifts and doctrines. Um, And they fought over all kinds of things, but they were united in allowing public and gross sin in their midst. So Paul rebukes them in 1 Corinthians And forces them to remove the sinner, which he then asked them to bring back in this second letter. In this letter, he's addressing his relationship with them and providing comfort. But it's a comfort that requires reconciliation to God and to each other. And he appeals to the idea of the resurrection in the kingdom as the focus of this life and reconciliation to God and to each other as critical as we prepare For the kingdom to come. And he says that ultimately this is what walking by faith is. We don't walk by sight. We walk by faith. Trusting that what God has said is true. Now as we think of Purim coming up this week. uh, uh, Trevor already mentioned that the book of Esther does not mention God. Uh, It only in oblique ways references prayer. Because it talks about fasting. It's almost as if it's a camera on uh, the Jewish people in a time of stress and it only addresses what can actually be seen. But underneath are the everlasting arms. And so that statement, if you don't do something, the deliverance is coming anyway, is an indication that God ultimately is in charge. And so, living in this world which does not acknowledge God, we must do the same. We must live by faith and not by sight, because we live in a very uh, secularized world. So, as he talks about this, we have to keep our focus on eternal, unseen things. Last week we saw, he said, we are the temple of the Lord, and as such we're a holy community. So we must be holy, we must be righteous, and we must be unified. Love God with all our heart, mind, and strength. Love our neighbor as ourself, and love one another as the sign of discipleship. And to do that, we have to separate ourselves from the world, but not isolate ourselves from the world. Uh, That's the struggle of what we commonly mean when we say we're in the world, but not of it. And again, the book of Esther indicates that the Jews were living by God's commandments in the midst of a culture that didn't think that made sense because you ought to be living the way we're living. And as this culture becomes less and less Christian-informed and even Christian-friendly, it will be those of us who live the commandments of God, who live the Scriptures in our daily lives, who will begin to be kind of odd in our 
approach, and there will be those who will hate us as a result of that, and there will be others who will see that light and will join us in that walk. And so uh, these are timely things uh, as, we, as we look at these scriptures. So we now <clears throat> come to chapter 7, 16 verses. I'll try to get through those uh, fairly quickly. The first one I ended with last week, where he says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of the flesh and the spirit, perfecting holiness <clears throat> in the fear of God. Now you may have noticed I'm still having my asthma hay fever, so I'll, I'll croak through this. It'll be all right. I believe that verse is really the end of the previous chapter, chapter 6, where he's talking about, uh, since we are this, let us uh, live this way. So we really pick up uh, in uh, chapter 7 at verse 2. But let me just remind you that Paul does this talking about perfected holiness in uh, the idea of ridding ourselves in spirit and in flesh of defilement. Now in Galatians, he's pretty clear about how that works. In Galatians 5, he tells us, the works of the flesh are these, and the fruit of the spirit is this. And he, throughout Romans, talks about if you are minded of the spirit, and what he means by that is you are following what the Spirit has told us, the Spirit inspired the Word of God. So if we're following the Word of God, uh, then we are going to not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. And there's no law against the things that is obedient to God. But the flesh is set against God. And when we mind that, when we follow that, then all of the things that break the law uh, are part of that process. So part of this perfection of holiness is not to grow to be perfect. It's clear from the scriptures that we will not achieve full perfection in this life because we live in these bodies. But in resurrection, we will have all of our being totally sanctified and saved and will be able to obey God fully in the kingdom to come. So let's pick it up at chapter 7, uh, verse 2, and uh, we'll go through the rest of the chapter. So Paul says now, Make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We took advantage of no one. Now Paul is reminding them of when he was with them. <clears throat> when he was with them, he taught them, he worked at night so that he would not be a burden to them. He did all that he could to show them the gospel of the Lord and the grace of God. And he did it in a self-sacrificing way. They do that. He had wronged none of them when he was with them. He had uh, corrupted no one. And he had taken advantage of no one. But once he left... <clears throat> and they started having their turmoil, and then he writes to correct them. There are people who are making arguments that, you know, Paul said he'd come, but he didn't come. He just sent a letter, and his letter really chewed you out. And there's this notion of he's got all these troubles and sufferings. He can't be that much of an apostle. And what he's saying is, <clears throat> you guys know me. 
Why, why are you not opening your heart to me and to those who are with me? It's really funny, human nature, that we know people and then we're away from them and then we hear something about them and we're very willing to hear the bad about them. And that ought not be the case. If you know someone's character and somebody says something bad or derogatory about them, you ought to be able to say, you're going to have to prove that to me because the person I know is different. Now, we're all capable of doing things, uh, but the issue still is, uh, what is your general attitude about those whom you know? Do you, do you depend on that experience that you've had with them? And he is appealing to that experience. So now in verses 3 to 7, he, uh, he goes on, he says, look, I do not speak to condemn you, for I've already said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together, because we're in Christ, and our sufferings are together in Him and in each other, and our resurrection will be together in Him and with each other. And so he says, I've already told you, I fully accept you as my fellow believers, why are you not accepting me in that context? He says, great is my confidence in you, and great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am overflowing with joy in all our affliction. Now he says, look, I know who you are, and I know your walk with God, and you are my comfort and you are my joy. Uh, I want to have fellowship with you without any problems between us. Uh, because that is my comfort and that is my joy. And now he's going to explain further. He says, even when we came to Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts uh, without and fears within. He said, look, when we came uh, to Macedonia, we were, we were in rough straits. He talks about this in chapter 2. When he says, I came to Troas, I was looking for Titus, couldn't find him, and I went on to Macedonia. And Paul was in a rough period, and it was just tough for him. And he says, uh, we were weary in the flesh, and we were tired, and we were worn out. I'm looking for fellowship with someone to be comforted. Uh, we don't get our comfort directly, in some sense, spiritually. We get our comfort relationally in that sense. And so that's what he's looking for. And uh, what he says is, uh, I had conflicts without and fears within. I was struggling, he says. Everything outside of me has fallen apart and inside I'm afraid. And I love those words because those are the words that the hymn writer took for just as I am. Fightings with uh, fears within and, and fears without that comfort, that fighting within and out that's in, um, is it Amazing Grace? Uh, o Lamb of God, I come. Yeah. Uh, that, that notion is that our common experience, life is tough. There are problems in life. And there are insecurities and fears inside us. Uh, and so while we're struggling to... Uh, overcome the flesh and while we're trying to be 
pure in spirit in those things. Those struggles are there. We need each other in that context. And he says, uh, but God who comforts the depressed comforted us by the coming of Titus. So he says, finally, we found Titus. And I was comforted in that relationship with him. But Titus is the one who Paul had sent to check on the Corinthians. And so he says these words. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you. As he reported to, to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. So Titus comes and says, the Corinthians, man, they, they long to see you. They want to be in fellowship with you. They are grieving with your troubles that you're going through. And they have zeal and an intent to, after they heard your rebuke, to fix that problem and to obey. And so he says, I was comforted and rejoiced even more in that context. So having said that, he says in verse 8, For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it. For I see that the letter caused you sorrow. Though only for a while. And I now rejoice. Not that you were made sorrowful. But that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to God's will. So that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces Repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Now, I'm going to try to do this. I'm having a heck of a time breathing. I'll be glad for the resurrection, you know. Breathe at last, breathe at last. (laughs) Uh, So here's what he's saying. I wrote you the letter, and I'm not sorry I wrote it. But I was sorry when I wrote it that I wrote it. Now you know this. When you have to confront somebody, that's not a comfortable feeling. And your goal is not to make them upset. Your goal is to fix the problem. Now, if your goal is to make them upset, you are not seeking the will of God. But if your goal is to reconcile the relationship... That's important, but it's going to upset people because we don't like being confronted. And the nicest way we say it, now look, there's nothing wrong between us, but I just want to work out this one little thing. That one little thing becomes like a pebble in the shoe for a while, and it really irritates us. So he says, "I, I regretted it at the time, but it's clear to me that I wrote the letter, and from what Titus is telling me, you really took it to heart. And you took it to heart in a point that it brought you sorrow, but the sorrow was just a little brief sorrow. And what ultimately happened was a correction in your uh, behavior towards obedience to God. And he says that's different than what the world does. The world gets all emotional and there's no change. But the reality is, you had a godly 
sorrow. This is important. It's not that we're sorry for our sins. It's not that we uh, feel bad that we have a disruption with the other person. It's whether or not we're going to change our behavior to walk according to truth so that we can have true reconciliation and we can rejoice in the fellowship with one another. And that's what he's talking about. Uh, In the same way that there is a major difference in forgiveness from a biblical perspective and forgiveness from a psychological, emotional perspective, there's an enormous difference in the process of reconciliation in a biblical notion where both parties are seeking reconciliation and the reason they can reconcile is that they're not reconciling to each other, but they're reconciling to each other in the truth. They're reconciling to each other in a standard that's outside of each one of them. If I'm reconciling with you and you're reconciling with me and we have to figure out what we have in agreement, We may not reconcile. But if what we're reconciling to is we're both going to walk according to the rule of God and He has commanded us to love one another, then we're going to work those things out that are interfering with that so that we can walk together. And so there is a biblical way of reconciliation and correction and there is a non-biblical way. And he's saying, you did what I hoped would happen. I didn't write it to make you sorry. I wrote it to correct you. You were corrected. And by that I am comforted and I am rejoicing because we are able to be reconciled. So, in that context, he explains these differences. I think we need to make sure our children understand these kinds of uh, differences as well. That we are reconciling with them, not because we're bigger than them, Not because we're uh, the parents and they're the child, but because we're striving to be obedient to God. They're striving to be obedient to God. And in that process, the roles that we play, Paul's role here was to rebuke. But not to rebuke for the purpose of just making them sad, but for the rejoicing that now they're back on the same page and they're going forward with God. And that brings us ultimate. Look at this. I'm going to make it by the normal time, right? Uh, That brings us ultimately to uh, verses 13 to 16. He says, for this reason uh, we have been comforted. Because you have taken to heart what I wrote. You have acted appropriately in it. And that report has come to me from Titus. He says, and besides our comfort, we rejoice even more for the joy of Titus. Because his spirit has been refreshed By you all. Titus says not only. Did they respond to you. But they treated me. Really good. It was really good to be among them. And so Paul says. That's even greater. It's not just you did it. Well we like Paul so we'll reconcile it. But they really are loving the brethren. And that's important. He says. For if in anything. I have boasted to him about you. I was not put to shame. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, so also our boasting before Titus proved to be the truth. Wow. You know, a lot of times we boast on uh, things. 
I, I run into people who run into you guys. And I talk about the Disciple Center. I talk about what we're trying to do. And I don't tell them that we're doing it perfectly. I just tell them what we're struggling to be a community of faith and to walk in that way and make family a priority and, and be in each other's lives and all that stuff. And I run into some people and they've run into you and they go, you know, <clears throat> I, I see what you mean. Uh, they, they really are struggling to do that. And I go, ah, I'm not put to shame, right? I mean, there's a rejoicing in that. You know, you like to hear with, with people that you have spoken about, act the way you spoke about them. Would you say, oh, that person's really a great person, honest to a fault. And they say, well, they ripped me off. And you go, ooh, right? So Paul's saying, look, uh, I boasted to Titus that this is the way you were. And, and he came back refreshed and he came back confirming that. So he says, his affection abounds all the more towards you. As he remembers the obedience of you all. And how you received him with fear and trembling. You treated him with respect as my co-worker. You, 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 were, you were really good to him. You demonstrated to him everything that I bragged about you uh, being. So I rejoice that in everything I have confidence in you is really true. What a great, great Statement. So what Paul's saying is, above doctrine, above uh, fame, above fortune, above problems, is the unity of the Spirit in the bond of love. And you guys have it. And it was demonstrated. And that's why I'm writing. Because I'm going to come to you and I want you to be fully ready to put this stuff behind us and move forward in that context. And he's going to talk a little more in terms of what's going on with the other churches in the rest of the the book. But he has gone back and forth several times, making it very clear that the tone of his letter, that first one, that rebuke, is not the attitude that he has towards them. I think it's important that we tell people uh, and remind them uh, reconciliation. I think of the story. I was going to go to the passage, but I'm just going to mention the story briefly. You recall Joseph was mistreated by his brothers. And he ends up uh, rising to a prominent position in Egypt. And then he's able to save his brothers. And they don't know that he's really the one doing it. Uh, finally, he reveals himself to them. There's a great reunion. They're, they're seemingly reconciled. Everything's great. It's wonderful and all of that. And then Jacob dies. And the brothers come to Joseph and say, Now look, before dad died, He said, please forgive your brothers for what they did to you. Wow. And Joseph is broken hearted. Guys, we put that behind us. That was reconciled before. 
I haven't demonstrated that to you. That's their own insecurity and fear. So be aware of this. That a person who knows they've actually done damage to you. When the reconciliation takes place. They're not always sure that the reconciliation has taken place. And it's helpful to tell them. If Joseph had said more, he was doing it all. Sometimes we don't hear the words and therefore we don't recognize the behavior. Uh, But he then spoke to them. This is settled with us. Yes, you meant it for evil. God meant it for good. We reconciled that, that all of us are in need of God's reconciliation. And we need to be that way towards our brothers, and particularly towards those who have wronged us, or we've had to rebuke, because the danger is that they're still in their mind thinking that you're remembering that. I often tell people when they tell me, some of the things they've done, kind of a confessional thing, that I have good news for you. One, if we want to compare sins, I will win. Okay? So I have no judgment over you in that sense. Secondly, God has been very gracious to me in that while I remember that I was talking with you and we were working through some things, I don't remember the details of that. And so when I see you, I don't think of those things. I just don't. I have people all the time, they say, oh, remember when you helped me with this thing? And I said, will you tell me again? And then when they tell me, it comes to mind. But I just don't think about those things. But the assumption is that as soon as I come in the room and I see them, that I'm thinking that. Okay? Now the reality is, that little ability that God's given me to do that is, is far surpassed by God's Willing to hold our sins against us no longer. Placing them uh, in the sea. And remembering them against us no longer. What a great thing. And we should be like our Father. And practice that same kind of reconciliation. Uh, If we have done no wrong to the other. And they have done wrong to us. We still treat them with full reconciliation because we have wronged, we have offended, we have done it too. We are all in the need of forgiveness and reconciliation. And so what Paul's saying is, uh, let's get back together. Let's walk as brothers and sisters with our Father who loves us and forgave us and therefore we can forgive and reconcile to one another. Let's pray.